Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 115 for August the 27th, 2013. I'm Chester Wisniewski with my guest, Paul Ducklin. Welcome back, Paul. Hello, Chester. And uh, boy, it's good to be in the office. I'm recording in the office, so I may sound a little different than some of the other chat chats. I finally uh, settled in and snugly into my, uh, my home here back in Vancouver. And one of the things that I saw on Naked Security over the last couple of weeks that I thought would be good to start our conversation with today is the impending end of Windows XP. And there's, there's a lot of different uh, components to, oh, I guess. Oh, Chester, that's terrible. They haven't warned us. <laughs> Nobody said a thing. Well, I think April 2014, for those of you that haven't been following along, will be the final Patch Tuesday. For the last 10 years. Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, but it'll be the final Patch Tuesday, and there's been a lot of fear-mongering, a lot of discussion uh, of what's going to happen. But I, I think what's clear is if, that if you're not off Windows XP, it's only going to become a much, much more dangerous place moving forward after that. You know, what, what was your take on, on where people are with migrating away? I'm still not clear why people wouldn't want to move forward because the security improvements in Windows 7 and then subsequently in Windows 8 to me seem hugely to outweigh the benefits of sticking with Windows XP. And the only reason I can think of is either you're very, 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 very used to it, or you've got some legacy apps which are forcing you to use it. And if that's your situation, then it's probably better, in my opinion, that you actually bite the bullet and move and go back to your legacy app supplier and say, sorry, uh, it's divorce time. Yeah, it's, it's important sometimes to ask the question, you know, what's the cost of insecurity? Uh, you know, after April, the vulnerabilities that are discovered in, in products like Windows 7, many of them will apply to Windows XP. So there'll be knowledge about what's broken as Microsoft fixes newer operating systems where there may be, uh, you know, those same vulnerabilities in the old code. So it's going to be a cumulative problem, you know. May will be the beginning of risk, but, you know, uh, June and July and August will be additive risk as opposed to just uh, one 30-day window of new risk like you may be used to. It is difficult to keep testing old software, and most vendors of software do draw lines in the sand at some point and say, you know, we're not going to carry on testing 18 different versions because the test matrix just becomes too big. So the old ones are going to have to fall off the end of the earth. It does seem a little desperate, though, that Microsoft themselves have kind of almost described XP as being a perpetual O-Day uh, <laughs> in the future. But particularly from a business point of view, since you knew that you were buying into a commercial operating system when you committed to XP, you know, it wasn't like you expected that you were getting Linux or, or one of the BSDs that would continue to be free. I presume you ought to have planned all along that you would need to move at some time. Yeah, I think it's fair to say everybody with Windows XP has gotten their money's worth at this point, and uh, the, you know the money issue probably is not the the real issue. And you know, you mentioned complexity, so that's a great segue into uh, another story that I, I think you posted to Naked Security about a guy who decided to try to crack his wife's password off of a WinZip archive and. And that uh, with the eight-character password she chose, he was unable to break it. And maybe all of this talk about, you know, super long passwords with squigglies and, you know, mixed case numbers, all this stuff, uh, you know, perhaps it's just a bunch of hullabaloo. What do you think? 
Yes, it was an interesting article because it was in quite an influential online publication. And bless his heart, he did try and measure what it meant to crack an eight character or a nine character or whatever password. The good side from his point of view is that he discovered that if you use a password protection system and a key generation algorithm that is up to scratch, then cracking an eight character password needn't be trivial. There can be enough complexity in there that makes a brute force attack impossible. The problem is that because he was using the AES flavored extensions of WinZip that allow for strong password protection, and because that system uses a decent key generation algorithm, PBKDF2, a password-based key derivation function version 2, which means you type in your password and it takes quite a long time to actually convert that into the bits that are used for the key, therefore slowing down a brute force attack. He sort of had the worst possible chance of cracking the password that, he's got, that he had got his wife independently to set. Now, there's something to be learned just in that, right? I mean, the, the, if you're storing passwords by using some of the techniques utilized by WinZip, this is something that can make it much harder on attackers if they manage to steal your, your hash database, right? If you're a website operator. Absolutely. But what you can't be sure is that, that the site you're using is that resistant to a brute force attack. And therefore, that extra complexity that you might put into a password in terms of getting what's called the entropy or the variability uh, does actually stand in your favor. So it is not, unfortunately, universally true that an eight-character password is strong enough. And that means that you probably need to look at following the advice of mixing upper and lowercase digits, wacky characters, as I call them, punctuation. And I aim for about 14 characters. It's a lot to remember, but I guess that depends on how valuable you think your personal information is. I guess it also brings to our attention how these things change, right? Like if you had asked uh, in 1990 how long a password should be to prevent uh, or to resist brute forcing, I guess uh, would be what I would say. And I would say, oh, you know, to be honest, eight characters is probably pretty good considering the amount of computing power uh, that we weren't using GPUs and all this stuff to hack things uh, and, and make attempts like we are today. Yesterday's best practice is as good as no advice at all, right? You need to be looking at the current state of the landscape. And I'm with you. I think 13 or 14 is probably the first place where you can have some comfort that brooding is going to be difficult if the uh, algorithm on the other end is, is uh, poorly chosen. Chester, the problem is that if you say, okay, let's just use eight characters, alphabetic characters from A to Z, you're just more likely to choose the password password than you are to choose something that would come out if you were to toss a coin or throw a die. You can apply sort of what you might call dictionary techniques even to a brute force. And that's what crackers like John the Ripper and other similar tools do. They have quite sophisticated scripting engines which allow them to go through, for example, say all the eight character passwords, but to start with the ones which are more likely than the stuff they'll try at the end. And that means that if you don't have enough complexity, you might fall first. And it's important not to be at the left-hand end of that cumulative, my password got cracked curve. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and that kind of leads to uh, a story about a, a, a password uh, vault insecurity that occurred uh, about a week ago with LastPass. Uh, LastPass is 
quite well known as a, a browser plugin that is able to encrypted store your passwords for all these different websites and help you recall them automatically when you visit those websites. And, and uh, they had a, a vulnerability where, I guess, uh, some uh, passwords after you use them in Internet Explorer uh, remained in the memory area allocated to LastPass. Uh, you know, our, our password vaults or password managers, I know you and I have, have slightly different opinions on this. I mean, is this the reason you shouldn't use them and that, you know, by putting your password somewhere, there could be a vulnerability in that tool you're using, in which case, you know, to a degree you're as good as unprotected? I'm not against password managers, but there is always that worrying question, oh dear, what happens if there's a hole in the password manager? Do I lose all my digital life in one go? Fortunately, that's not what happened with LastPass. As you said, if you could do a memory dump, you might be able to recover some passwords. That wasn't good. They fixed it pretty promptly. Uh, kudos to them for that. It wasn't a remote hole that would allow an attacker to retrieve your passwords. Uh, but it is a warning that if you're using a password manager, absolutely you need to stay on top of security fixes that may come out for it, perhaps more so than uh, other applications you're using. Another tip for people that may be using something like KeyPass or 1Password or LastPass, there's a bunch of these. I don't want to sound like we're either picking or uh, picking on them or endorsing any given one of them, but uh, another technique for those financial accounts or retirement accounts and that kind of thing you can do is store a partial password. Uh, you know, perhaps you store 10 characters in your password vault and then memorize another 10 that you tack onto that, and that way you can have a really good, long uh, passphrase, but if somebody compromises your vault, they're unlikely to be, you know, they're just going to try the password that's in there and it's not going to work. And so that, that can help with the memorization of, of exceedingly long strings if you want to go to the, the length of uh, trying to use an exceedingly long string. Although most banks uh, that I know here in North America force all your passwords to be less than 10 characters in all caps anyway. So we, we'll talk about that some other time. <laughs> Chester, I think another really valuable thing that people who struggle to remember complex passwords can get out of a password manager is they can avoid the false sense of security you get from having lots of different passwords where actually they're kind of just the same password with a very obvious algorithmic tweak. You know, for example, adding A1, then A2, then B1, then B2, that kind of seems not entirely obvious. But if someone has cracked one of your passwords, it might be a very good guess about which part of it is the bit that you change from one to the other. If you use a password manager like LastPass, of course, it generates a random password, which really does stretch the key space as far as it possibly can. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, uh, there, there are some proposals for trying to strengthen security uh, of, of web surfing. I mean, we've We've been through the whole fire sheep thing in the past, right? With, you know, Twitter for a while wasn't encrypted. Facebook wasn't encrypted. Uh, it was using plain HTTP, as it were. For a while, some of these things you had to remember to put HTTPS at the beginning, and you could optionally choose to protect your Google search queries, for example. And then, you know, more of these big services now have been starting to default to at least using SSL or HTTPS uh, for login authentication part of the negotiation, even if they don't stay in, in TLS or SSL mode. Now, um, well, I think we, we should be fair, Chester, that actually FireSheep was designed to teach us that doing TLS, HTTPS, just for the login part 
shrouds the password, but actually the session cookie for the rest of that session, which could be a long time, hours or even days for some services, is as good as having the password. So actually, if you look at all the mainstream services, the, the Twitters, the Facebooks, etc., they are using TLS throughout, including protecting the session cookie that is the session time equivalent of your password. My understanding is that this HTTP2, it's going to provide a way that it will not be up to the server side to decide whether it will do TLS or not. You'll be able to say when you connect, if you can't do TLS, then I don't want to come here. To me, this this stinks a little bit of IPv6, uh, which is that while there will be an option to, on occasion, perhaps maybe use a new standard, the old standard is going to be around for so long that it may not have any useful impact at all. I mean, the first thing I think about when I looked at this specification is, well, with a man-in-the-middle attack, I'm just going to downgrade you to HTTP 1.1 and then strip away the encryption, just like we see downgrade attacks working today. And until we can effectively eliminate HTTP 1.1, there's no way to necessarily prevent that type of thing from working if someone else is able to manipulate the bits between your computer and the remote computer. And, and, and I don't foresee in my uh, crystal ball that that's going to change. I think you may have hit the nail squarely on the head and maybe hit several thumbs at the same time. Yes, I'm sorry, I don't support TLS 1.2. Would you like to try TLS 1.0? No, I don't. Oh, oh, would you like to try SSL 2? Oh, to heck with that. Would you like an unencrypted transaction? Yes, sure. Just like with IPv6, until you actually move there and say, I'm not going to have a dual stack. In other words, there's no fallback. Then you might as well not move. Uh, and the problem is, if you don't have a fallback, then more than you might be comfortable with is going to break. So I think this is a bit of a pipe dream. It's not meant to be, what, standardized to, what, 2014? And then presumably it will come limping in over the next decade or so, in just the same way that XP has been limping out for the last decade. Yeah, I guess you, we've come full circle, which is our, our backward compatibility uh, with things like Windows XP uh, applications, etc., you know, is what kills us in the security realm. We, we do have smart people coming up with better and better mitigations, better and better ways of negotiating how to send keys to one another safely. Uh, we've got great ideas on how to make the world a more secure place, but as long as we're uh, insistent on being compatible with the old broken way of doing it from yesteryear, it's hard to move forward in a confident and safe manner. I think it was in the 1950s in the UK when they switched from using uh, wiring houses with a star main to a ring main and figured what we need is we'll have a fuse in every plug by law, it was quite obvious that they needed to choose a socket that couldn't accept an unfused plug. And so the UK switched from using round pin plugs to square pin plugs. It was the only way that the, the safety and integrity of the new system could be maintained at all. And I think sometimes we just need that disruptive change in computer science in IT. Unfortunately, that goes against this whole idea of frictionless interaction with your users. We're stuck by making things far too easy much of the time. I couldn't agree more. Uh, thanks for joining me again, Paul. That concludes Software Security Chat Chat 115. As always, for the latest security news, please visit nakedsecurity.sophos.com. 
All of our podcasts are available at podcasts.sophist.com via RSS and on iTunes. And until next time, stay secure.